As I have done at numerous times in the past, this is not a message of my own writing, but whenever I take a message that's not my own, I'm sure to give credit to the person who has written this message. This is part of our classic sermon series where we find out about preachers who have gone on before and whose words are still with us and can be a great encouragement to us as the Word of God is evergreen and the messages that God has given through those who have taught are still very powerful in this present time as the gospel never wears out. And so tonight I'd like to share with you a message from a man whose name was Christmas. Christmas Evans was born on Christmas Day in 1766. His father was a poor cobbler in South Wales, and he had a tough childhood because his father died when he was only nine years old, and he went to live with a family member who did not educate him or care for him. As a teen, therefore, he ran with a pretty rough crowd, and he barely escaped death several times. In 1783, being unlearned and unable to read or write, Christmas Evans accepted Christ as his Savior. He taught himself to read and write and became, according to Charles Spurgeon, the John Bunyan of Wales. In 1787, he was attacked by some of his former friends and lost one of his eyes. At first, he preached itinerantly, walking as much as 20 miles on a Sunday to reach his preaching engagements. Evans taught himself Greek and Hebrew and preached in his native Welsh and in English. He became immersed in theology and took sound biblical positions on the questions of his day. His sermons stand as some of the greatest ever. They are organized and structured, doctrinal and Christological. It was said that his sermons evoked uproarious laughter and convulsive tears. Evans was truly a giant in the pulpit and led thousands to a knowledge of Christ. And the message that I would like to share from you from Christmas Evans tonight comes from the text Matthew chapter 28 verse 6. Yes, it's a resurrection text. The sermon is titled, The Resurrection of Jesus, and here as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we're going to get a look ahead to why this baby was born, why God became a man, and what he did after accomplishing eternal salvation on the cross when he rose from the dead. Matthew chapter 28, verse 6 says this, He is not here, for he is risen. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. This is the way Christmas Evans preached this text. The celebrated Jonathan Edwards begins his history of redemption with an account of the Lord's visit to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in Eden. All the wonderful works of God toward the children of men, since the seed of the woman was promised to bruise the serpent's head, are to be considered as so many parts of the same great machinery of providence whose wheels, like those of Ezekiel's visions, all move in majestic harmony, though their thousand revolutions may seem to us discordant and confused. The chief design of all the divine manifestations recorded in the Old Testament was to prepare the way for the Redeemer's appearance upon earth. Jehovah often suffered his people to be in great distress and perplexity. He lengthened the chain of Satan and his angels, He allowed a partial success of their infernal schemes and permitted them to prevail for a season against his people and pride themselves in their power and their skill in order to make their defeat the more signal and gather more glory to himself from their final overthrow. During the engagement, 
The victory often seemed to be on the side of the enemy. But when the smoke of battle cleared away, the pillar of God was seen upon the camp of Israel. If his people are besieged between Piharoth and Baal-Zephon, he raises the siege by dividing the sea and making a highway through the deep. While the waters rise up in a solid wall on the right and the left and roll back in ruin on the pursuing foe. If an army comes to arrest Elisha on Carmel, the mountain is covered with celestial warriors and the surrounding heavens teem with horsemen and chariots of fire and the enemy are smitten with blindness and taken captive by the prophet. If Goliath of Gath confronts the camp of Israel with his challenge, roaring like a lion, and if the valley resounds with his voice, a little shepherd boy goes forth with his sling and the vaunting blasphemer is smitten to the ground and slain with his own sword. If the worshipers of the true God are cast into the fiery furnace or the den of lions to show the power and gratify the pride of an infamous tyrant, then there is one among them like unto the Son of Man, and the violence of the fire is quenched, and the mouths of the lions are stopped. But when Messiah was slain and buried, the enemies of God then boasted more than ever in their crafty and malicious schemes. This was the great decisive engagement between heaven and hell. The enemy imagined the captain of our salvation to be vanquished and destroyed, but his fall was no defeat. He yielded to the powers of darkness, apparently, that he might triumph over them openly. He suffered himself to be taken prisoner by death, that he might seize the tyrant on his throne, demolish his empire, and deliver his captives. And if none of his friends on earth had courage to proclaim his resurrection, a preacher descended from heaven to announce the joyful fact. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. It's a wonderful message and a wonderful messenger. On the morning of the third day after his crucifixion, Jesus revived in his tomb, and the sound of the earthquake reached the heaven of heavens, and a mighty angel, swifter than the light, descended straight to the new grave in Joseph's garden, calling on no one for the key, instantly rolled away the stone from the door and sat upon it. And he made it his pulpit, from which he preached to the women the doctrine of our Lord's resurrection. Let us consider first the testimony by which this fact is sustained. Secondly, the fact itself as the sure basis of Christianity. First, it appears from the record of the evangelist Luke that the women were much perplexed at finding the stone rolled away from the mouth of the sepulcher and the body of Jesus gone. Then they were saluted by two angels in shining apparel who said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you while he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Here is the testimony of two credible witnesses, a sufficient number to attest the truth of our Lord's resurrection who testified to nothing but what they had personally witnessed and knew to be fact and delivered their testimony in simple and unambiguous language that could not well be misunderstood. Now, while the women went to inform the disciples of what they had seen and heard, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that had been done and what had been done. 
what can the testimony of these enemies of Christ concerning his resurrection be? That an angel whose countenance was like lightning and his garments white as snow descended from heaven and rolled away the stone from the door and sat upon it, which so terrified them that they became like dead men? To confirm these testimonies, our blessed Lord himself appeared unto many after his resurrection, who became witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and how he was slain and hanged on a tree, and how God raised him up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen beforehand by God, even to his disciples, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead, whom he commanded to preach the gospel unto the people and to testify that it is he who is ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, to whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here we may observe that he appeared to those who knew him best and gave them satisfactory and incontestable evidence of his resurrection. And he appeared not only to the apostles, but to more than 500 brethren at once. We have an account of his appearing at 10 or 11 different times. On these occasions, he conversed with his disciples. He reminded them of what he had said to them before his crucifixion. He showed them his hands and his feet and brought them to touch and examine his person and to satisfy themselves as to his identity so that they had ample opportunity and every facility that could be desired for ascertaining whether he was indeed Jesus of Nazareth, their master, who had lately been crucified before their eyes. It was therefore with great power that the apostles bore witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit corroborated their testimony. Our faith in this distinctive doctrine of Christianity therefore rests on a divine foundation. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And the apostles went forth and preached everywhere, while the Lord also was working with them and confirming their word with signs. In a few weeks after the resurrection of their master, their testimony concerning it was received and firmly believed by many thousands of people, not in some distant desert part of the world, but in Jerusalem, the very place where they had seen him crucified. How nobly the Apostle Peter reasoned on this subject when he said this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved among you by miracles and wonders and signs from God, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Such was the evidence of our Lord's resurrection that among those who were living at the time and even those who so strenuously opposed the gospel, it appears to have been scarcely doubted. Now, secondly, let us consider the fact of our Lord's resurrection and its bearing upon the great truths of our religion. This most transcendent of miracles is sometimes attributed to the agency of the Father, who as the lawgiver had arrested and imprisoned in the grave the sinner's surety, 
manifesting at once his benevolence and his holiness, but by liberating the prisoner, proclaimed that the debt was now canceled and the claims of the law satisfied. It is also sometimes attributed to the Son himself, who has power both to lay down his life and to take it up again, and the merit of whose sacrifice entitled him to the honor of thus asserting his dominion over death on behalf of his people. Also, sometimes it is attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit, as in the following words of the Apostle. He was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ is clear and incontestable proof of Jesus' divinity. He had declared himself equal with God the Father and one with him in nature and in glory. He had told the people that he would prove that truth by rising from the grave three days after his death. And when the morning of the third day began to dawn upon the sepulcher, lo, there was an earthquake and the dead body arose, triumphant over the power of corruption. This was the most stupendous miracle ever exhibited on earth. And its language is this. Behold ye persecuting Jews and murdering Romans, the proof of my Godhead. Behold Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate, the power and glory of your victim. I am he that liveth and was dead, and lo, I am alive forevermore. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Look unto me and be saved all ye ends of the earth, for I am God, and besides me there is none other. Our Lord's resurrection does indeed afford incontrovertible evidence of the truth of Christianity. Pilate wrote the title of Christ in three languages on the cross, and many have written excellent and unanswerable things on the truth of the Christian scriptures and the reality of the Christian religion. But the best argument that has ever been written on this subject was written by the invisible hand of the eternal power in the rocks of our Savior's sepulcher. This confounds the skeptic. This settles the controversy and affords an ample and sure foundation for all them that believe. If anyone asks whether Christianity is from heaven or is from men, we point them to the tomb hewn out of the rock and say, there's your answer. Jesus was crucified and he was laid in that cave. But on the morning of the third day, it was found empty. Our master had risen and gone forth from the grave victorious. This is the pillar that supports the whole fabric of our religion. And whoever attempts to pull it down like Samson pulls down upon himself. If Christ is not risen, then is our preaching in vain and your faith is also in vain. You are still in your sins. But if the fact is clearly proved... If the fact is clearly proved, then Christianity is unquestionably true and its disciples are safe. This is the ground on which the apostles stood and asserted the divinity of the faith. Moreover, I testify unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus is the most stupendous manifestation of the power of God and the pledge of eternal life to his people. 
The apostle calls it the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is a river overflowing its banks. It's an idea too large for language. Let's look at it just for a moment. So where do we find the exceeding greatness of God's power? In the seven stars, Orion, or in the strength of Behemoth and Leviathan? No. In the flood, in the fiery destruction of Sodom, in the overthrow of Pharaoh and his army, in hurling Nebuchadnezzar like Lucifer from the political firmament? No. It is the power which he wrought in Christ. When? When he healed the sick? When he raised the dead? When he cast out devils? When he blasted the fruitless fig tree? When he walked upon the waters of Galilee? No. It was when he raised him from the dead. Then the Father placed the scepter in the hand of the Son and set him above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. This is the source of spiritual life. The same power that raised up Jesus from the dead shall also quicken our mortal bodies. His resurrection is the pledge and pattern of ours. Because he liveth, we shall live also. He shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. We hear him speaking in the prophet, Thy dead shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth shall cast out her dead. How divinely does the apostle speak of the resurrection body of the saints. He says this, It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the thing that is written. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where thy victory? Thanks be unto God that gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ever since the fall in Eden, man is born to die. He lives to die. He eats and drinks, sleeps and wakes to die. Death, like a dark steel-clad warrior, stands ever before us. And his gigantic shadow comes continually between us and happiness. But Christ hath abolished death. He's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He was born in Bethlehem that he might die on Calvary. He was made under the law that he might bear the direst penalty of the law. He lived 33 years, sinless among sinners, that he might offer himself as a sin offering for sinners upon the cross. Thus, Christ became obedient unto death, that he might destroy the power of death. And on the third morning, a mighty angel rolling away the stone from the mouth of the sepulcher makes the very door of death's castle the throne whence he proclaims, the resurrection and the life. The hero of our salvation traveled into death's dominion, took possession of the whole territory on our behalf. 
and returning laden with spoils, ascended to the heaven of heavens. He went to the palace and seized the tyrant and wrested away his scepter. He descended into the prison house, knocked off the fetters of the captives, and when he came up again, he left the door of every cell open that they might follow him and be united with him in bliss forever. He has gone over into our promised inheritance and his glory illuminates the mountains of immortality. I love that phrase. And through the telescope which he has bequeathed us, we see the land that is very far off. I recollect reading in the writings of Flavel this sentiment, that the souls in paradise wait with intense desire for the reanimation of their dead bodies, that they might be united to them in bliss forever. What rapture there shall be among the saints when those frail vessels from which they escaped with such a struggle as they foundered in the gulf of death shall come floating in with the springtide of the resurrection to the harbor of immortality. How glorious the reunion when the seeds of affliction and death are left behind in the tomb. Jacob no longer will be lame, nor Moses slow of speech, nor Lazarus covered with sores, nor Paul troubled with a thorn in the flesh. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The glory of the body of Christ is far above our present conception. When he was transfigured on Tabor, his face shone like the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light. This is the pattern shown to his people on the mount. This is the model after which the bodies of believers shall be fashioned in our resurrection. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. In conclusion, the angel said to the women, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. Followers of Jesus, be you also preachers of a risen Savior. Go quickly. There is no time to delay. And publish the glad tidings to sinners. Tell them that Christ died for their sins. Tell them that Christ rose again for their justification. Tell them that he is ascended to the right hand of the Father to make intercession for them and is now able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by him. And you, if there be any among us, impenitent, unbelieving men, hear this blessed message of salvation. Do you intend ever to embrace God's proffered mercy? Don't wait. Procrastination is ruin. Now is the accepted time. Fly to the throne of grace. Time is hastening and you will soon be swallowed up in eternity. May the Lord have mercy upon you and rouse you from your indifference and sloth. It is my delight to invite you to Christ, but I feel more pleasure and confidence in praying for you. I have besought and entreated for you by every argument and every motive in my power, but you are yet in your sins and rushing on toward hell. Yet I will not give you up in despair. If I cannot persuade you to flee from the wrath to come, I will intercede with God to have mercy upon you for the sake of his beloved son. If I cannot prevail in the pulpit, I will prevail 
at the throne of grace. This was the resurrection message of Christmas Evans. And I thought it good to share it with you tonight. That as we celebrate the birth of the child Jesus Christ, we remember that he is not a baby. We do not pray to a baby. We do not think of him as a baby. He is a glorified, risen, conquering Savior. He has all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is coming again soon to judge the living and the dead. And so as the world stops to think about the humility of God, the gentleness of the baby, the helplessness and harmlessness of that child, remember that baby is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is offering to all people everywhere eternal life, eternal life. These words are so familiar to us, but yet may God give us hearts to be able to comprehend afresh the significance of eternal life and eternal destruction. The wrath of God versus the grace of God. The joy of forgiveness versus the agony of everlasting guilt. The difference between those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ.